This is the podcast for Indelible, a documentary film in progress for the week of July 4th, 2016. Carl L. Harp believed in chaos. But what did that mean? Chaos can take many forms. It may be an unexpected storm in the middle of the sea or a riot in Paris. But in our familiar society, it is that which is feared, that which exists outside of the restraints of order, the order which is desired and maintained through various systems of social control. One might be controlled through fear, as the sociopath knows. One might be controlled through hunger, as the tyrant knows. Or one might be controlled through physical discomfort, as the torturer knows. Our communication systems have also brought us other methods of control. The media brings us streams of images and words bundled into cohesive forms. These forms are like a modern-day hieroglyph, where a simple iconic symbol might carry with it to the reader a complex narrative. Before social media and streaming video, these word clusters traveled to us more slowly. In order to encounter this dream, we had to turn on the TV set, the receiver, which after a while allowed us to receive the stream. It was a clumsy stream, where advertisements were still silly skits. And after our time for viewing was over, we turned off the stream, and the house was silent once more. There were also other streams. The lyrics and music were introduced through transmissions from radio stations, then made personal through recordings on objects, which you purchased slowly as your budget would allow. Other word clusters came through newspapers or magazine headlines, which you encountered once a day at most. But the media of today is much more present in its immediacy, and it is always attached to us through our ubiquitous computing devices, like smartphones and tablets. The empty time between word clusters and wordless communication is much smaller. Word clusters are usually banded together or branded with a name because naming is a very useful convention for directing attention one way or another. It is why naming conventions are best ignored or at least resisted. Naming requires effort. The purposeful naming of distinctions 
within societal or cultural groups grew out of the 1960s. It was after World War II. It was after advertising incorporated what had been found to be useful in psychology. In particular, the psychological studies and practices during wars by various branches of the military, both for battle and in prison camps. The naming of social distinctions became a very useful method for impersonalizing the destruction of and killing of others. We didn't have to see the enemy as human or individual. They were merely part of a group. They were those people. These same naming conventions were also used at home to carve up the body politic through the new practice of naming generations. Fittingly, it started with naming the first generation to be born after World War II ended, the baby boomers. This first use went mostly unnoticed and seemed merely convenient, but the naming of other generations soon followed, Generation X and the Millennials. It was after these conventions multiplied that you could perceive how this naming could be used. One named generation was pitted against another, like two dogs in a fight. The media then sent out the word clusters. Generation blank was stealing from generation blank two. It was as if generations had now developed personalities. Why didn't we notice this was similar to the way corporations had become people in the courts? Naming had allowed us to reduce any number of people into a single word cluster branded with a name. We didn't have to think of individuals within a generation with all their variations. Instead, we could lump them all together and blame the fill-in-the-blank generation for any particular undesirable event or outcome. Why didn't we notice this was similar to the way the military rallied its troops to kill their enemies as a faceless named group? These same divisionary tactics were used to create wars between genders and races of a certain economic class. But notice, please, the media never gives cute names to economic classes. Why do we not notice there is no desire to create wars between economic classes by those with the power to name? And why is this? The effort it takes to perceive an individual rather than see them as a member in a named group was something Karl Harp understood very well. He understood the machinations which comprised most institutions, however small. He understood how one could be born and then dropped 
into an institution like a youth correctional facility or state social services or a prison and then resurface, but only if there was a breach in the machinery. And any such opening only offered a momentary freedom. His life's work included creating such openings. They could be seen when he was told to fear a prisoner who was a member of a gang in San Quentin, but instead of avoiding him, he taught him to read and they became friends with something to talk about. Harp did not seem to like named groups, especially when he was thrown into one, operating as a club. He liked it even less when he was asked to take action on behalf of the club to harm individuals in an opposing named club. When this happened, he would often go to the individuals and try to talk with them to defuse the situation. But in a world of naming groups, this was often seen as crossing forbidden boundaries. It was dangerous, but Harp preferred to ignore these dangers, paying a price for taking this position more than once. Those who harmed him used physical violence or distortions of his character or position but he gained something by not wavering, even when he himself was merely part of a named group as a prisoner. He maintained his individuality with all his unique flaws and strengths. He resisted the naming which would bind him to the group devised by those with the authority to name. After reading and learning about Harp's enemies, including individuals in law enforcement who took pleasure in his wrongful arrest, imprisonment, torture, and murder, it seems that it was Harp's resistance to being forced into any named group that fueled their resentment and anger. His enemies were slaves of those who named them and were taken in by the naming conventions of their time. Those who named Harp as part of the group prisoner and criminal included the military and law enforcement. Those who harmed him were part of these same groups. So Harp became their enemy merely because the group where he was placed was named by their superiors as enemy. To see Harp as an individual would be to see him outside of the named group. Carl L. Harp was to remain named within his assigned group. And sadly, those who followed orders to harm him preferred to remain part of the group rather than stand as individuals. Carl Harp believed in chaos because anyone who stands outside of the naming conventions and prefers to perceive others as individuals creates chaos out of order. And that's all I have for tonight. Good night.